Well, I hope that you're ready for our time together. Uh, learning in the Word of God and things of God, we have a very special speaker uh, that uh, has come all the way from uh, North Carolina. We're very blessed to have um, Hank Hanegraaff with us. He is an author. He is a radio uh, talk show host. I remember many years ago, I spoke with him on the phone about 20 years ago. I uh, called in. I was in uh, seminary at that time, and uh, I, I, I had begun listening to him. And you, 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 you probably don't remember me among all the millions of calls you had. But I called in. I said, I've got to ask this guy a question because he, he knows everything. And so I called in, and I waited like an hour and 45 minutes just to have my question on, because he and John MacArthur were doing Q&A at that time. And boy, I, the, their answer to my question, I have taught that answer ever since. So... Uh, thank you for uh, answering the questions. And if you have a question for Hank, because he is on AM 630 at 3.05 p.m. Monday through Friday here in the Northwest, there is an index card right here. And you don't have to wait an hour and 45 minutes. We will have three Q&A times later on, and we are looking forward to that. He is the president of uh, the Christian Research Institute, a nationally syndicated Bible Answer Man broadcast. And you you can listen to him online as well. It's broadcast here in the U.S. as well as in Canada. Sometimes I've listened to him online. He has a number of books that have cumulatively sold millions of copies. And I'll be talking a little bit more about that uh, in the future as well. Uh, and I hope that you'll take advantage of some of the resources that he has. So I want to give him as much time as possible. And we'll have a little bit more about his own family and background. He's a father of 12 children. Some people ask me if his wife is coming. I've said, no, she's taking care of the rest of the 11 back home. Uh, I know four are in college. So imagine those of you who have two or three in college, you're trying to foot the bills for all of that. Well, you can talk to him. He'll be very sympathetic with you. So let's give him a warm welcome as we introduce Hank Hanegraaff. Thank you very much for that warm welcome. I am just delighted to be here. I have never seen so many happy, friendly, smiling faces in one room. Um, I, th I asked Xander, um, I, I always travel with one of my kids, uh, sometimes two. Uh, that way they get to see what I do in ministry and not resent it but appreciate it. And uh, so I brought Xander. He's... Uh, he, he was finally in the pecking order. Xander's eight years old, and Xander, maybe you can stand up and say hi to everybody. Wave to everybody. Uh, and you can go if you want, or you can stay, whatever you want to do. Um, also, wanted to mention briefly, um, since I'm going to be dealing with a... Uh, a variety of important issues in this session uh, that the answers to questions in further depth uh, can be found in the books that I'm going to show you here uh, in just a moment. Uh, this session will deal with the three great apologetic issues, and I've oftentimes said that if you can deal effectively with these issues, you can answer virtually any question when it comes 
to the area of apologetics. Of course, apologetics is the defense of the faith. It's not an argument. It's not an apology. It's a defense of the faith. And of course, we are called as believers to always be ready to give an answer, a reason for the hope that lies within us, but then to do it with gentleness and with respect. In other words, the purpose is never to demonstrate your mental acumen. It's not to win a debate. It's to use your answer as an opportunity. Of course, as Christians ourselves, so often the winds and waves of doubt beat upon the doorway, as it were, of our house. We run into difficult circumstances and then we wonder, is what I have given my life to substantive and true? And in like fashion, you can go back to these three issues that we'll be discussing today and know that God created the universe, that Jesus Christ is God, and that the Bible is the infallible repository of redemptive revelation. So today I'm going to deal with the issue of origins first and foremost, and I've written about that in two different books. Uh, A book I wrote quite some time ago, which is titled The Face That Demonstrates the Farce of Evolution. This gives you a memorable way to be able to deal with the debate on origins. And recently I came out with a book called The Creation Answer Book. And so it's a question-answer format, again, dealing with the issue of origins. I've oftentimes said how one views their origins ultimately determines how they live their life. If you believe that you're a function of random chance that you arose from the primordial slime you're going to live your life by a different standard than if you know that you are created in the image of God and accountable to him the second great apologetic issue is the issue of resurrection in fact resurrection is the centerpiece of the historic Christian faith which is to say that there's nothing more significant than resurrection. And this is not only in terms of defending the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a historical reality, but more to the point, recognizing that you too arise. And if that is true, you can live your life by a different standard. If Christ rose, you know you too will rise. And if you will rise, then you do not have to live to be politically correct. You do not have to live to be popular. Prosperity, not that there's anything ultimately wrong with it, will never be your major goal. Because you'll lay up for yourselves treasures in eternity. And let me just on a personal note say this, that I am now 62 years of age with 12 children and 6 grandchildren and I looked around this room this morning as I got here there are a few people here and then later on more people came and I saw women with with carriages and women with babies strapped to their bodies and I thought wow I can remember distinctly all 
the teachings I have done around the world with my wife there strapped with a baby in a carriage and, you know, kids running up. And one time I was speaking and I, I thought, you know, I'm not saying anything funny, but everybody's laughing. I don't understand why everybody's laughing. In fact, I remember precisely where it was. It was at, uh, uh, in Southern California. I was speaking for Greg Laurie. And uh, why is everybody laughing? And I turned around and I saw these silhouettes behind uh, sort of a, uh, a curtain doing cartwheels across the stage. And they were my children. Um, so it's, it, it's wonderful to see all these children. And, but the, the bottom line here is I wrote a book on resurrection, uh, defending the historicity of Christ's resurrection guaranteeing our resurrection, the second great apologetic issue. And the third is a book that I wrote quite recently called Has God Spoken? And the operative word here in the subtitle is memorable. Memorable proofs for the Bible's divine inspiration. And we'll, we'll talk about why that is so critically important in the epoch in which we live. So these books deal with the three great apologetic issues. Let me repeat that one more time in terms of... uh, These are not my books, by the way. I took them from your book table, so I'll go back there. But um, uh, Let me repeat that one more time so that you understand the significance of what I'm saying. I'm saying there's three great apologetic issues. In order, they are the issue of origins. This is not just a apologetic issue, it is the apologetic issue. From a Christian perspective, the God who spoke and the universe leapt into existence is not merely transcendent. He is transcendent, but he's not merely transcendent. The God of Islam is merely transcendent. The God of Christianity condescended to cloak himself in human flesh. He came and lived and moved among us. And he died and rose again. He ascended. And his resurrection stands today as historical fact. And what I mean by that, as we'll talk about in just a few moments, is that we can build a cumulative case for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which again guarantees our resurrection as well. And then finally, the Bible. What is your authority? Mitt Romney's authority is the Book of Mormon. He fervently believes, and this is not a political statement by the way, I'm not suggesting in any sense that he's running for uh, pastor of the United States. He's running for president of the United States. So this is not a political statement, but it is true that he believes that the Book of Mormon is the most correct of any book on earth and is the keystone to his religion, which is to say that he reveres the Book of Mormon above the Bible. And that raises an interesting question. That question is, what is your authority? If the Book of Mormon is just as credible as the Bible then that perhaps should be just as much an authority as the Bible. I was just in, earlier this year, at the University of Tehran, debating two Orthodox Jews and a Muslim imam. His authority, speaking of the Muslim imam, was the Quran. He called it the Holy Quran. That was the keystone 
It was God's only uncorruptible revelation. So who is right? Do I just have a bias towards the Bible? Or is there some substantive way in which I can demonstrate that the Bible is divine as opposed to merely human in origin? So that's our goal over the next 45 or 50 minutes to talk about those three great apologetic issues. And I hope to give you the information in memorable fashion, first and foremost. But secondly, I hope that it whets your appetite. All of you are at different stages. Some of you know more about this than I do. Some of you know less than I do. We're all at different stages, and we're learning together. But I hope it whets your appetite to want to continue learning. One thing I can tell you for certain, I've done the Bible Answer Man broadcast answering questions live for 23 years. And the more I learn the more I realize how little I know in the scope of what could be known. So we're continually learning and in that process becoming more and more adept, sharper tools in the hands of the Holy Spirit in the process of doing the most significant thing, and that is changing lives. All of us are going to die. I started saying 62. I don't know how I got here. But I am 62 and I'm starting to look at my own mortality. My dad died at 74. If I live to be as old as my dad, I have 12 years left. What is that in perspective of eternity? So you start thinking about your mortality. And it's not something we should only think of when we get to be 62 years of age. We're all one heartbeat away from eternity. As a new believer... I remember someone saying something that at the time sounded trite, but no longer is insignificant. Only one life. Soon twill be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. As we start this session, let me just bow and let's... Talk to our Creator for a moment. Father, as we gather together, my privilege to be with a church family, I pray, Lord, that you would use this time in extraordinary ways. Ways that we cannot fully comprehend for the extension of your kingdom. And Lord, as we speak about doctrinal truth, I pray, Lord, that we might recognize that truth without life is not the highest calling, just as life without truth is not our highest calling. May we evermore be mindful that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Watch your life and doctrine closely, said the Apostle Paul. Persevere in them, for if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Father, be with me as I speak, together as we think. Lord, may we glorify you, and may this be used to enrich our lives and to touch other lives so that we might be multiplied. We pray this not by might, nor by power, but by your Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
My son, said Solomon, do not reject my teaching. But let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not upon your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce so that your barns may be filled with plenty and your vats overflow with new wine. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves even as a father, the son in whom he delights. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding for its profit is better than the profit of silver. And it's gained than fine gold. She's more precious than jewels and nothing you desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. She's a tree of life to those who take hold of her. And happy are all who hold her fast. And then Solomon says, The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps were broken up. And the skies drip with dew. Well, that is one model for origins. The other comes from the evolutionary paradigm which has become pervasive in our epoch of time. Many people in prominent positions in the U.S., indeed around the world, believe that if you do not hold to the evolutionary paradigm, then you are for all intents and purposes, an obscurantist that lost your brain somewhere in the narthex of a church. In other words, the basic idea is that evolution is as tenable and supportable as, well, the law of gravity. But evolution needs to be critically evaluated not just by you, But by your children, does evolution stand or fall in an age of scientific enlightenment? I think there's a case to be made that in 19th century science, there was place for evolution because there were many things that we did not have a good grasp on. But today we live in the 21st century. We live, as it were, in an age of scientific enlightenment. And we should be able to demonstrate to a watching world that evolution is no longer tenable. And remember, at the very outset, what evolution presupposes. Evolution presupposes that nothing 
created everything. That life came from non-life. And that the life that came from non-life produced morals. Think about that. Nothing creates everything. Life comes from non-life, and the life that comes from non-life produced morals. Now, when I talk about evolution, it's important that we carefully define our terms. There is warrant in a Christian worldview for what's called micro-evolution. There is no longer warrant for macro-evolution. Micro-evolution simply posits changes within kinds. Macro-evolution posits changes from one kind to another kind. So we can, as Christians, say, I believe in micro-evolution. But we can never say, I believe in macro-evolution. And there are two basic reasons for that. One of those reasons comes from special revelation. The other of those reasons comes from general revelation. Special revelation tells us that kinds reproduce after their own kinds. General revelation likewise tells us that kinds reproduce after their own kinds. Which is to say that the fossil record is an embarrassment to evolution. During Darwin's day, we did not have millions or multiplied millions of fossils. The fossil record was impoverished by comparison to where we are today. Today we have, well, a bit of a, an exaggeration, but zillions of fossils, and yet we do not find credible transitional forms from one kind to another kind. So the fossil record is an embarrassment to evolution. But before I get into that, let me quickly backtrack for a moment and just underscore the significance of this issue. In the evolutionary system of thought, there's no longer need or room for the supernatural. The earth was not created, it evolved so that everything in it, including our human cells, our minds, our brains, our bodies, evolutionary men need no longer crawl into the lap of a divinized father figure whom he himself has created as the figment of his own imagination. Now that is not a statement that I just made, but it is a statement made by Darwin's bulldog. The one that was most significant in popularizing his theory. There's no longer need or room, he said, for religion. Everything can be explained through purely material processes. That's called philosophical naturalism. Everything 
So there's no need, indeed no room, for the supernatural. So what happened? Once you got rid of God, there's no objective reference point. There's no moral lawgiver. And now, ethics, morals become a mere matter of the opinion of the most popular the strongest lobby group, if you will. So mores and ethics are constantly in a state of flux. Think about what's happened just on the political scene. In the day of John F. Kennedy, a Democrat, you had far more conservative values being espoused than we do from the Republican Party today. I mean, think about that. Go back and read Kennedy's platform compared to the platform of the Republican Party today. And the Republican Party is far more conservative than the Democratic Party in terms of social mores and ethics. But what is the point of that? Again, is it a political statement? No. It is simply suggesting that today, truth has been sacrificed on the altar of subjectivism. So what was true in the time of John F. Kennedy is no longer true today. Why? Not because truth changes, it's because popular sentiment changes. With no enduring reference point. Societal norms quickly devolve to pressure. A second consequence that I should mention briefly is the sexual revolution. Sir Julian Huxley said that the sexual revolution was a direct consequence of humanity transferring God from a sovereign well to a Disney character and now we no longer live within the parameters that he sets forth for us to live within but we've decided that we know better we get rid of God and in turn we now have gonorrhea and herpes and a species threatening pandemic we need to realize that God sets parameters around our lives not because he is a cosmic killjoy but because he wants our joy to be complete but we've dispensed with God and we now have all kinds of societal ills that we face that we need funding for And thirdly, I would say that although race is a very dominant argument in the public arena today, most people forget that the evolutionary paradigm is rooted in racism. This is not to say that all evolutionists are racist, but it is to say that evolution is rooted in a racist paradigm. Think about what Darwin himself said. He said that the Caucasian races had beat the Turkish hollow 
in the struggle for existence. And he said, therefore, at no very distant date, an endless number of lower races will have been eliminated by higher, more civilized races around the world. You don't hear that quote very often, but that is a bona fide, substantiated quote by Charles Darwin, a 19th century scientist, but nonetheless, someone who is defended today. You don't believe in Darwin's theory of evolution? You hear that all the time. Darwin was not only racist, a man of his time, but nonetheless racist, but he was sexist. He said that women could never attain to the intellectual prowess of a man. Read his Descent of Man. The quotes, by the way, are in my book. They're substantiated quotes. And they're not isolated quotes, as you'll see. Now, I've never dared tell my wife something like that. That she would never attain to my intellectual prowess. That would be a foolish thing for me to say on a lot of different levels. So more consequences for society hinge on this issue than on any other. And that's why I started out trying to pique your interest in, and, and rivet this thought in your mind that this is not just a issue, it is the issue. How one views their origins inevitably determines how they live their life. Of course, the question always is, does evolution conform to truth? That which corresponds to reality, or is it a mere predilection? And the reality is this, the fossil record, as I alluded to just a few moments ago, the fossil record absolutely says no to evolution. The Cambrian explosion uprooted Darwin's tree of life. It was an icon, but just an icon. And because of this, Evolution has had to scramble for all kinds of far-fetched notions. One of them, punctuated equilibrium. A lizard lays an egg. Well, this is kind of a permutation of it, at least. A lizard lays an egg, and out comes a bird fully formed with wings and tail feathers. And therefore, there are not millions, I should say billions of gradations, but quantum leaps. Now imagine that. You can imagine the uh, consternation for someone with 12 children. Every time my wife was infanticipating, I was in the hospital guarding the window, lest when she gave birth, my offspring fly away on me. This is not science, it is science fiction. And yet, though the science of genetics militates against it, it is a necessary step on the part of some evolutionists to try to explain away the poverty of the fossil record. Eight men, fiction, fantasies, and frauds abound. I dare say that every time you see the eight-man icon, you see the argument 
the icon has become the argument. There it is. Here's the icon. It's on the cover of Time magazine. Must be true. But very few have actually looked credibly at what the icon actually consists of. The ape to man icon does not correspond to reality. Pithecanthropus erectus, the ape man that walked erect. It's a femur, three teeth, a few bones found in 1891 by Eugene Dubois, a lot of imagination, but little to support it from a factual standpoint. In fact, 19 doctrinaire evolutionists looked at Pithecanthropus erectus and wrote a 341-page report, utterly discarding it as a precursor in the development of humanity. Peking man, the same thing. An interesting association or assortment of skulls and teeth, uh, but little to substantiate it. Uh, Piltdown man, uh, it was cleverly conceived, crudely carried out. It was, in short, a fraud. Was the jaw of an ape stained to match a human skull? A lot of uh, dentistry on the teeth and uh, then some doctorates written to delude children in school to think that this somehow or other is rooted in evidence. It wasn't until 40 years later that it was formally withdrawn as being reliable and authentic. There was already a monument to it. If you look at the ape men, fiction, fantasies, and frauds, from Pithecanthemus erectus to Lucy, it is simply mind-boggling that we have been told a story over and over again so often that we finally bought into it. At least many of our children have bought into it. The difference between an ape that cannot read and write and a descendant of Adam who can compose a musical masterpiece or send a man to the moon is an unbridgeable distance. A chasm that cannot be papered over with mere rhetoric. Think about chance. What is the chance of forming a simple protein molecule by random processes? The answer to that question is simply this, there is no chance. If you say the universe is 20 billion years old, if you say it's 100 billion years old, there still isn't enough time to form a simple protein molecule by random processes. And even were you to be able to do that on the basis of chance, positing here the science of statistical probability, forming the second would be infinitely more difficult. Think about the complexity of the universe in which we live. The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. If we were closer to the sun, we would fry. If we were farther away, we would freeze. If the moon were smaller, 
and farther away tidal motion would cease and the oceans would stagnate and die. If the moon were slightly larger or closer to us, tidal motion would submerge vast areas of life, of land, and render life unlivable. From the temperatures to tides to even the tilt of the earth, we live on a privileged planet. Not one that is a function of chance, but one that points inexorable, inexorably to a benevolent creator. And that's your choice. A benevolent creator or blind chance. As you look around this this room, a vast number of impulses are traveling from your eyes to a complex computer system in your brain. It's called a visual cortex. Linking information from the eye to the brain is axiomatic in doing what you do every day. Without the coordinated development of the eye and brain in synergistic fashion, the isolated development of either is not only meaningless, it's counterproductive. So one didn't evolve from the other. They were arranged by a creator who loves you. Or think for a moment about a fertilized human egg. The reason I think this is a wonderful illustration is that in Darwin's day, a fertilized human egg was thought to be quite simple. A microscopic blob of jello, if you will. In our day and age, we know it is among the most complex, ordered structures in the entire known universe. The tapestry of life beginning with a single thread as a a microscopic egg in one human being is fertilized by a sperm cell in the other. That union not only marks the beginning of a brand new life, it marks the genetic future that that life will have. A single fertilized egg the size of a pinhead contains chemical instructions that would fill 500,000 printed pages. And I'm trying to understate the case here. In time, that one single fertilized human egg divides into the 30 trillion cells that make up the human body, including 12 billion brain cells. To say that is a blind watchmaker function simply is not tenable in an age of scientific enlightenment. Think about the universe in which we reside. There are only four explanations that philosophical naturalism can give, and one of them that they won't give. The first is that, well, it's an illusion. It's a figment of our imagination. Even a full solipsist looks both ways before it crosses the street, so we don't even have to deal with that in Western culture by and large. The second possibility is that it sprang from nothing. The reality is nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. Julie Andrews saying that in the in the sound of music. The third 
is that the universe eternally existed. That is utterly devastated. Uh, uh, by, for example, not in toto, but as an example, by the law of entropy, which says everything in the universe runs from order to com- disorder, from complexity to chaos. That everything's running inexorably downhill from usable to unusable energy. If the universe was eternal, it would have died an eternity ago of a heat loss death. Which leaves the fourth function which the evolutionist will not talk about, and that is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Nothing is more scientific, credible, and correct in an age of scientific enlightenment. Much more could be said. I have to move on quickly, but let me simply add to this that When you think about this issue, think about it not only for yourselves, but think about it for your children and for your grandchildren. Having been in the ministry for three decades or more, I've seen so many cases of little Xanders going off to university and coming back and you simply don't recognize them anymore. And they never darken the doorway of a church again. And in their minds, they believe that you're wonderful people, but you just don't get it. And so they live the faith, leave the faith. You look at the Xers and the Yers in terms of generations. Almost 50% of them no longer darken the doorway of a church. So this is not simply rhetoric, it's not highfalutin language, it's not, well, you know, I'm glad someone uh, deals with these things. All of us need to continue to sharpen our ability to deal effectively with these issues. This is not, again, a apologetic issue, it is the apologetic issue. Well. Moving on rapidly from the apologetic issue, and of course it always kind of tugs at your heart when you do that, but we'll have lots of question and answer sessions and so forth, so we'll have opportunity to get back to this subject. But in a Christian worldview, the God who spoke and the universe leapt into existence also became knowable. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. You say, wait a minute. Born of a virgin. In the history of humanity, has anyone ever been born of a virgin? What nonsense is this? How can you believe that? Maybe we could believe that 16th century, 19th century, 12th century, 1st century, today. There's no warrant for believing that Jesus was born of a virgin. Nonsense. Born of a virgin? That small nugget of rhetoric that I just laid on you is what your children will hear as well. Born of a virgin? And the reason that has become so untenable is 
philosophical naturalism by definition says that everything is explainable by purely natural processes. Now, so often that is seen as being open-minded. It isn't open-minded at all. It's closed-minded. Christianity allows for both natural and supernatural explanations for what we encounter in this universe. So Christians are the ones who are genuinely open-minded. We say, this universe demands the supernatural. The universe itself is an effect that demands a supernatural cause. Every effect has to have a cause equal to or greater than itself. This universe demands the supernatural. So from our perspective, we don't rule the supernatural out of court. No, we say, let's see if there's substantial evidence for the supernatural here. So we're always looking for evidences. And mark that in your mind. The Christian faith is not built on blind belief. It is built on faith founded in a refutable fact. That's why the old hymn writers used to think, think, how firm a foundation ye saints the Lord has laid for your faith in his excellent word. So as believers, and we're going to talk about faith later on uh, in this conference, but as believers, we don't have blind faith. We have faith in fact. There has been a false dichotomy from the Enlightenment on, from the Italian Renaissance on maybe, until the presence, a dichotomy between faith and fact. As though scientists have facts, Christians have faith. And so we get sort of a patronizing look when we talk about our faith. Eh, that's fine, you know, practice that in church. But we have the facts. Remember that what we're talking about here is not blind faith, but faith founded on a refutable fact. Which is to say that when I talk about the supernatural, when I invoke the supernatural, I don't do it blindly. That's my predilection. I'm going to move in that direction. No, I do it because there's a real basis for doing this. I can say this from a personal standpoint. I became a Christian when I was 29 years of age. I was a skeptic. I believed in the evolutionary paradigm. And it wasn't until I looked at the evidence that I was convinced. Now, there's more to the story than that. But that part of the story is yet true. The point simply being that when I say that I believe in the incarnation of Jesus Christ coming in flesh, or I believe in resurrection, it is not blind. As Christians, we can build a cumulative case for resurrection, not only can, but should. What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture, and then he appeared first to Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. 
Then he appeared to James and then all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared also to me, says Paul, as to one abnormally born. It was the appearances of Jesus Christ that took scared, scattered disciples and galvanized them into a force that would turn an empire upside down. And let me pause again for a moment here just to underscore the significance of what I'm saying. We live in a tumultuous time. I just went to see Dinesh D'Souza's movie, uh, Obama's America. Terrifying. I would write it off as sophistry and sensationalism and sloppy journalism, except I know Dinesh very well. And I would say that although I haven't done any primary research at this point, it was terrifying to see that movie. But irrespective of that, we live in a tumultuous time. And it's very easy for us to point the finger at Obama or the Democrats or, if you will, the Republicans or the secularists, the atheists, the skeptics, the infidels. But that's not the problem. The problem is Christians. Pagans always exercise their job description. What else would they do? The question is, do we exercise our job description? That's the operative question. And the reason I inserted that thought at this juncture in the talk is we have an opportunity to do what a first century church did. Turn an empire upside down. It's not as though this is a lost cause. It's only a lost cause if Christians are not salt and light. We're called to do for the truth what the pagans are doing for a lie. And there again, it involves being always ready to give an answer. So resurrection, capstone in the arch of Christianity, is that true? Is it false? Is it a odd predilection on our part? No, we can build a cumulative case for resurrection, which is what Paul did in what I just quoted. Christ died. The fatal torment of Jesus Christ is now conceded almost unanimously by both skeptics and spiritual scholars. Both sides of the coin. Very few today doubt the historicity of Jesus or the fatal torment of Jesus Christ. It's a fairly well-established fact. There are some dissenters I've written about that, but by and large, credible scholarship accepts the fatal torment of Jesus Christ. So Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. The second thing that Paul says, in essence, is the tomb was empty. Christianity cannot survive an identifiable tomb containing the corpse of Christ. If an ossuary, a bone box, was found containing the bones of Jesus Christ, game up. End of Christianity. 
Go find another belief system. Christianity cannot survive an identifiable tomb containing the corpse of Christ. And yet, the tomb was empty. But it goes beyond an empty tomb. Paul says Christ appeared. So Christ suffered fatal torment, the tomb was empty, and Christ appeared. Paul says he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, then to five hundred of the brothers. And then listen to what he said. Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Now, what's the import of that? They're still there to be cross-examined. This is not done in a corner. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. And Paul was radically transformed by the appearances of Christ. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. His job was killing Christians, mocking Christianity. He went from a ceaseless persecutor to the chief proselytizer of Gentiles. He was utterly, radically transformed because Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus as to one abnormally born. Peter. That's graphic. He was... He was someone who walked with Jesus Christ. He did not betray Jesus Christ in the same fashion that Judas did. But he did betray Christ. He was afraid of the identification made by a maid. And so what did he do? He denied his Lord with vile oaths. I do not know the man. But after Christ appeared to him, he became a lion of the faith. And today, we remember his bold declaration in answer to the question, Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He was utterly transformed because of the resurrection. So scared, scattered disciples became lions of the faith. They turned an empire upside down. And I'm submitting to you today that were we to have an understanding of resurrection as the apostles understood resurrection because they had seen the resurrected Christ, we would live our lives by a completely different standard. We would not be microcosms of this culture. We would be change agents in this culture. We wouldn't be afraid of the culture. We'd be transforming the culture. I hate to leave resurrection there, but in interest of time, we move on to the third great apologetic issue, and that is demonstrating that the Bible is divine as opposed to merely human in origin. The question again becomes, what is your authority? Is it the Quran? Is it the Book of Mormon? 
Is it some other religious writing? Or do you believe the Bible? Again, if I make political comments or comments that sound political, this is not meant to steer anyone in any particular direction. That's not my purpose. It's simply letting you know what's happening in the culture so you can be aware of that. I said something about Mitt Romney. Let me say something about Barack Obama. Barack Obama says that the Bible teaches slavery. He not only has said that publicly in addresses, but he has said that in print. You go to, for example, his Audacity of Hope. In that book he says, the Bible teaches slavery. In that book he says, the Bible teaches that a parent should stone his child were he to stray away from the faith. The Bible teaches eating shellfish is an abomination. The Sermon on the Mount, he says, is so radical that the U.S. military could not survive its application. Now think about that for a moment. If the Bible truly teaches slavery, would you want the Bible to be your authority? I wouldn't. If the Bible taught me to stone one of my children because that child strayed from the faith, I don't know that I'd want to adhere to the precepts of the Word of God. So in an unqualified sense, what Barack Obama is saying, and he makes this clear, you have to really pick and choose. You cannot accept the Bible as divine as opposed to merely human in origin. The Bible is distinctly human in origin. And you've got to pick and choose what you want to believe. Bill Maher, the punmeister of our day, ridicules the Bible. I used to believe in the Bible, he says. I used to believe in a 6,000-year-old earth. I used to believe in a man being swallowed by a whale. Then something happened to me. I graduated the sixth grade. Professors, punmeisters, even presidents call into question the veracity of Scripture. You, as a believer, need to be able to demonstrate that the Bible is divine. Because if it's not, well, we have to get back to, well, let's say that well, biblical times homosexuality was wrong, but now, I don't know, you can't really hold to this being wrong and now whole denominations are having debates about it and ordaining those who believe in same-sex sexuality or even practice same-sex sexuality we've moved on the Bible was written it was a product of its time we are now more enlightened that's the ultimate decision you have to make are we more enlightened or is the Bible really given by God God speaking through men, through their personalities. It's not Memorex. It's not dictation. It's speaking through their personalities. If you read the Gospels, they're synoptic for a reason. They're not all giving you the same facts in the same way. They're giving you the same information in a complementary way. 
not contradictory, but complementary. And by the way, were they given the same facts in exactly the same way, uh, we would immediately yell collusion. That's what you do in a court of law. So the question now becomes, if the Bible is credible, now we have an authority. If it is not credible, we have to go back to public opinion. So it is incumbent upon us to demonstrate that what we have in Scripture corresponds to reality. Going back quickly to the notion that the Bible uh, teaches that eating shellfish is an abomination. Is that true? Well, within the context of a theocratic kingdom, there were civil and ceremonial laws that pointed to a substance. That substance is Jesus Christ. Those civil and ceremonial laws were there for a reason. The reason was that Israel was to be separate from the pagan nations. Why? Because they were called to be a light to the pagan nations. So there was a purpose to civil and ceremonial laws. But once the substance came, there was no need for the shadow. So what did Jesus say about eating shellfish? Well, he wasn't talking directly and specifically about shellfish, but he said it's not what goes into a man's mouth and out through his body that defiles him. It's what proceeds from the heart. And then Mark appends to those words of Jesus in saying this, Christ declared all foods clean. Now, there may be some reasons why eating shellfish may not be particularly good for you. Maybe some medical reasons. I'm not a doctor, but there may be some good reasons not to eat shellfish. But that's not the point. The notion of eating shellfish was ultimately a civil and ceremonial law, which had a purpose. That purpose has been completed in Christ and therefore abrogated. So in that particular case, what Barack Obama said was the skin of the truth, but it was stuffed with a lie. I'm not suggesting he was intending to lie. He's either talking about something he didn't understand very well. So it's not only important for us to be able to defend the Bible as an authority, but there's an attendant question. The title of my book is, Has God Spoken? But if God has spoken, the question is, what has God said? That entails an art and a science. It's called a fancy word, hermeneutics. It's the art and science of biblical interpretation. It's a science in that there are rules that apply. It's an art in that the more you apply the rules, the better you get at it. Now, this is a very important statement. We spend more time in the Christian church watching television and engaging in frivolities than we do studying the Word of God. And therefore, we don't know how to mine the Bible for all its wealth. We don't know how to read it for all its worth. And we no longer live in the pages of the Bible. We live in the shadow of the Bible. The privilege we have of having Bibles seems utterly lost on us. 
I've quipped from time to time that we have more Bibles than ever before. People come to church color-coordinated with their Bibles. I mean, we have every kind of study Bible you can imagine. You know, the pregnant mother's study Bible. The, you know, the golfer's study Bible. I like that one. Um, we have every kind of Bible and translation imaginable. We have formal translations. We have dynamic translations. We have paraphrases. We even have bad paraphrases. But we no longer live in the pages of the Bible. We live in the shadow of the Bible. And we should never forget that it was the Bible that became the DNA of Western civilization. You know, the philosophers were smart. Aristotle, Plato. They're brilliant men. They codified laws of logic. But yet, they believed in a universe ministered by moody gods. Aristotle believed that in his epoch of time, everything that, had, everything that could be discovered had been discovered. Now again, there were men of reason. Here's the point. Reason devoid of revelation always lands us in the blind ditch of ignorance. Augustine and Aquinas and Anselm, you can go through the great men in history, they believed in revelation. They believe that God has condescended to reveal himself, both in special and in general revelation. As a result of that, science became possible. Jurisprudence, medicine, Christian university came out of that ethic. That's not a pagan domain. That's a Christian development. We now live in the shadow of the Bible, and I fear we have taken our Bibles for granted. Up until the time of the invention of movable type, the only English Bibles extant were based on the translation work of John Wycliffe. He was called the Morning Star of the Reformation. And for his efforts, 44 years after he died, his bones were exhumed and burned and the ashes unceremoniously scattered to the wind. Why? Because it was thought to be an outrage to take the Bible out of the hands of ecclesiastical authorities and put the Bible in the hands of the lady. And then William Tyndall, who followed, began translating the Bible. His work became in large part, a basis for the King James translation of the Bible. William Tyndall believed that the boy who drives the plow should be as familiar with the Word of God as was the Pope. And for that he was martyred. 
1536, October 6th, his, his body ablaze, he cried out, Oh God, open the eyes of England's king. And that prayer was answered by King Henry VIII, who had Bibles of largest volume chained to pulpits throughout the land. And people would come from hither and yon and hear the word of God tethered to a pulpit. Why was it tethered to the pulpit? Was it because they were afraid of thieves? No, they were afraid that if the Bible got into the hands of the laity, we would experience the abomination of iniquity. Untrained lay people would read all kinds of untoward meanings into the Word of God, and therefore it had to stay in the hands of ecclesiastical authorities. Well, of course, the the Reformers, not necessarily talking about the Reformation here, but the Reformers believed that God by His Spirit could guide us into all truth. That we could learn principles, particularly the analogy of faith, whereby we would always interpret the cloudy in light of the clear. That there were main and plain things so simple that a child could understand them, and yet so deep that a theologian could drown in them. And so they believed in putting the Bible in the hands of the lady. Of course, as you know, in 1604, King James I commissioned the King James Version of the Bible, which was completed in 1611. And many translations have followed. So now we have all kinds of Bibles. That's the goodness and greatness of the story. The gall of the story is that we don't read them anymore. I've been doing the Bible Answer Man broadcast for 23 years now. 24 years. 24 years. Every year, I get smarter and smarter. Well, actually, I don't get smarter and smarter. Actually, there's a bit of truth in that. That I am a perpetual student. I'm learning more and more. But it's really not that I'm getting smarter. It's that when the culture becomes more and more biblically illiterate, so it seems. We no longer know the basics anymore. Our children live in a high-tech world. They have a million distractions. I'm so glad, and I introduce you to Xander. Every time we have a meaningful discussion in our home, and there are many... I always notice he pulls up a chair next to mine and he sits there. And then on a trip like this, I realize that he was really listening. It's not that kids don't care. Oftentimes it's that we're not feeding them well. We give them distractions to get them out of our hair. The church, quite frankly, has abdicated its responsibility, just as parents have. It's one thing to curse the darkness. It's another to build a lighthouse in the midst of the gathering storm. My time is up. I didn't even give you the information necessary by which you can defend the Bible as a reliable authority, but perhaps we'll get to that as we continue on the next few days. But it is my great pleasure to be here. Every time I have an opportunity to stand in front of a group of people, 
I consider it a genuine honor and a privilege. And I never take it for granted. Uh, you, you, you never know what can come out of meetings, whether large or small. Sometimes you, you speak to one person for weeks and weeks and you think that was a waste of time. I had that experience not all that long ago and I had uh, witnessed to a Jehovah's Witnesses many, many years ago and, and I thought, wow, what a waste of time. And uh, that Jehovah's Witness called me up on the Bible Instrument broadcast and I found out that I did a little bit of uh, sowing and, 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 and someone else came along and watered and God gave the increase and now 20 years later... He's teaching Christians how to witness to the witnesses. So it's not a numbers game. It doesn't matter how big a group is, how small a group is. It doesn't matter how significant a group is, how insignificant a group is. God can do the most significant things through us. It's not by might nor by power, but by His Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this group that You are sovereignly bringing together not just in terms of a group listening to a speaker but a group interacting with one another we pray Lord that you would bless this time that you would use it for the extension of your kingdom oh Lord Jesus in your name we pray Amen